You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Dylan Ferguson, a Chief Warrant Officer 4 in the U.S. Army. Dylan, thanks so much for joining me on The Spear. Thank you for having me. So yours is um, kind of the latest in a series of uh, of episodes that I've had the good fortune to record with pilots. You're in, uh, an aviator, a helicopter pilot. Um, so you're going to share a story from 2009. But before we get into that, I wonder if you can also um, give listeners a little bit about your background in the Army. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I enlisted in the delayed entry program in 2003 in between my junior and senior year of high school. Uh, I enlisted as a medic in the Army Reserves. I planned to, I kind of had a life plan of what I was going to do, go to college, do this, do that. And um, that kind of all got thrown out the window the first time we did uh, medevac training. Uh, I got loaded onto a stretcher to a helicopter and, uh, you know, I was looking around to look at the pilots, look at the crew chiefs. And I was like, I'm in the wrong career field. And uh, so I went to my um, career counselor, immediately dropped a warrant officer packet. Um, went through flight school uh, as a Chinook pilot in the reserves. And then uh, pretty much as soon as I got through flight school, I realized, hey, I kind of I want to do this full time. And then I dropped my call it active duty packet as, as quickly as I could and then uh, rolled over to the active component. The problem was they don't <clears throat> at that time, they did not need active duty Chinook pilots. So they um, they asked me if I'd be willing to go over to Apaches. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So. Went to Apaches, went to uh, Bravo Company, uh, first the 82nd Attack Reconnaissance Battalion at Fort Bragg. Uh, that's where I did uh, my first deployment with them and, and where the story takes place. Uh, after that, um, I volunteered to go do a, uh, an infantry brigade uh, aviation tactical operations assignment, where it's kind of you're an air liaison. Uh, I went to the 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment, deployed with them. Uh, and then after that, uh, I went over to the fixed wing community and I worked in the intelligence community for about five years, uh, before I got the phone call to come here to West Point. So. Okay. So you've got experience with a number of different aircraft. Uh, clearly you flew Chinooks first and then Apaches. Did you have a preference for one over the other, or did you not really care? You just wanted to be up in the air flying. So ultimately the latter, you know, um, I've always kind of joked. I was like, I'll fly a kite, you know, as long as I'm, I'm here and I'm participating <laughs> and I'm involved, uh, I can't say a bad thing about Chinooks. I mean, they're a fantastic platform. I do say I preferred the Apache mission better, but really, I mean, I'm happy as long as I'm in the air and I'm flying. Okay. 
So this was your first deployment, you said in 2009? Yes, this is my first deployment. Uh, I was like 23, I think at the time. Um, just, and, and really it's my first uh, active duty duty station too. So it was, uh, it was kind of overwhelming uh, <laughs> when I was uh, that young and uh, that junior in the army. So when you switched over from Chinook to Apache, did you have to essentially go through flight school again, or is there a different sort of course? It, it's an abbreviated flight school. You go through what's called an AQC, an aircraft qualification course. So I didn't have to go through a lot of the basics. Um, it, generally, everybody who goes through an AQC is already a qualified aviator. We had a lot of foreign students in the class and that kind of thing. Okay. So you get to your first duty station. Um, this is going to be your first or your first active duty duty station. This is going to be your first deployment, but you, you know, you've, you've been in the army for a number of years, both reserve component and now active duty. Uh, you've been through, you know, flight school in full once, and then the abbreviated version once. Did you feel, uh, you know, as that deployment is coming up, did you feel prepared? Uh, I certainly felt prepared. Uh, I had enough time back at home station prior to going, we went, did a GRTC rotation, uh, we had a fantastic uh, a group of people there at uh, Wolfpack at the time. Uh, so they, they certainly prepared me. Um, we did a lot of uh, gunnery drills, uh, kind of our version of going to the field. We'll go sleep out uh, on the range with the helicopters and, you know, do gunnery for a couple of weeks at a time. Um, so, yeah, and you definitely just iter- do iterations over and over, especially as an Apache pilot. Um, we did not do a lot of cross countries. It was, it was more about being that attack pilot, less about being, an aviator in the sense that we didn't do a whole lot of, Hey, let's, uh, let's fly to Wilmington and, you know, go get a cheeseburger. It was always out on the range practicing our, you know, our metal tasks. Okay. Uh, so this first deployment was to Afghanistan. When did you get in country? So we got into country April, 2009 timeframe. Uh, and Where I guess, uh, I was, we were in Kandahar. So we, uh, Bravo company was actually assigned to, that was when we started doing the, the combat, or the task force um, format for sending a brigade overseas. So, you know, you had a, a little slice of everything. So I was actually part of 117 CAV at the time. So Bravo Company was assigned to them. Um, so it was all Kiowa squadron, and we were the one uh, Apache uh, company assigned to them, which uh, Apache pilots and Kiowa pilots love to rib each other a bit. But uh, it was a it was a beautiful uh, relationship we had because they were really good at getting low, mixing it up, uh, getting into contact. And then they would, um, you know, call us in to help out. Sometimes we'd even fly a three ship formation with a two Kiowas and an Apache overhead kind of thing. So you were in, in Kandahar and how big of an area was, uh, was your squadron essentially responsible for? So in 2009, that was kind of an interesting time because at that, that was during the surge and there had only been one combat aviation brigade really in theater at that point. So the uh, 101st was there when we showed up, they moved up to RC East and the 82nd, uh, continued to stay in RC South. Uh, so we really, we had pretty much all of RC South was technically kind of our AO, um, for the 82nd cab, uh, 117, we, we generally work in Kandahar South, uh, as far West as uh, camp bastion, and then as far east, uh, pretty much up to the border of RC East. Okay. And so you get in country in April. Um, and then over those first few weeks, kind of maybe even a couple months, did it settle into a battle rhythm? And if so, you know, what was, what was that like? We definitely settled into a battle rhythm. Uh, so I was a, a, I was a junior pilot at that time. I uh, had not progressed uh, to pilot in command. You always have to have one pilot in command in the aircraft at the time. Um, so 
generally, there was a pool of us untracked, non-piloting command W-2s. And so we kind of just had to hop on a mission whenever we got the opportunity to. Um, but generally, I was flying once, I'd probably say once every other day, um, three, four times a week, uh, maybe more if uh, the tempo was pretty high. Uh, and then it also depended on what our mission set was. Uh, to kind of give a little context of the mission that uh, we're going to talk about, we actually created a, a slice of um, helicopters and pilots, and we called it Detachment 82, because uh, there was a lot of Special Forces customers in Afghanistan at the time. Uh, we got to work with uh, Australian SAS, British Special Boat Service, um, you know, o- American ODAs, SEAL teams, MARSOC, uh, Czech Republic, SOF even, uh, Canadians. Uh, and unfortunately, there was not enough 160th, um, you know, the, the Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Uh, there was not enough 160th to meet the overwhelming demand of the Siege of Sotif community. So there was a conventional little detachment set up, and it was three Blackhawks, two Apaches. And we would pick up Siege of Sotif missions uh, that the 160th declined to take. Um, we did vehicle interdictions. We would do air assaults. And sometimes it was just routine air movements, but in support of Sotif elements, so moving their mail and people around. Um and so the battle rhythm also kind of depended on what I was doing for the, cause it was the same pilots and same aircraft. It's just, if I was working for Siege of Soda, if we had one call sign and if we were working for RC South, we had a different call sign. Um, and, and so that also kind of added to the battle rhythm. So that, um, you called it detachment 82, you said three Blackhawks and two Apaches. Was it sort of a permanent group of helicopters and, and, and pilots, or did people kind of rotate into that detachment and out? People definitely rotated, at least from the Apache uh, side, people did rotate in and out. Um, there was kind of, obviously there were higher, um, higher caliber missions. So they definitely wanted to put the right crew mix on it. They didn't just randomly throw people on there. Um, Cause like I said, you're working with some top tier customers. Uh, so they definitely made sure that it was a good crew mix. You had a good mix of experience. Uh, you want to get junior guys on there so that they could experience those missions and gain um, some knowledge of themselves. Uh, but you didn't just want to throw a whole bunch of, uh, you know, rookies, so to speak on, on those missions. So is that, um, the mission we're going to talk about was in late September, uh, 2009, you've been in country for four or five months. Uh, by this time you've kind of described the battle rhythm that you settled into. So when you are, th- and I, and I assume this mission that you're going to talk about, I think you said is, uh, was part of this sort of detachment 82 support to soft ground forces. Um, did that mean that you were sort of you know, on the ground in a, in, in a sort of ready status, or did it mean that, Hey, we've got, they called you and said, we've got this mission tomorrow or in three days or whatever. Um, and we want to make sure that we've got aircraft overhead, you know, during this period. So I would say the most of the missions that we did for dead 82, we, um, <clears throat> we would, uh, we'd pre-coordinate with, uh, the guys. Uh, and so this mission took place out in RC West, for example. Uh, there was no cab assigned RC West at the time. So what we would do, uh, there was, you know, soft forces at, uh, Fob Thomas, and that was the little soft base just right off of Shindand. <clears throat> we'd fly out to Shindand, uh, and we'd stay there for about a week and we would, we would tell them in advance, Hey, you know, rack and stack, whatever missions you got, your targets, et cetera. And they would just kind of build a mission set for that week. And cause they, they knew that they would have air assets to support that. And so we go out there and they'd give us con ops and we would, and we'd have graphics and everything that we needed. So it wasn't, sometimes there was ad hoc missions, but for the most part, it was all very deliberately planned out and we would go and support it 
um, it went, especially when we went out west. And then uh, there was generally uh, deliberate missions uh, that we did in RC South as well. Okay. Uh, and so when you went out there, uh, where, so that was in RC West, where about was it? It, it was roughly about halfway in between Farah and uh, Shindan. Okay. Okay. So you were out there then in late September? Uh, yes. Yes. And then what was the mission on, I think you said the 28th? Yeah. So the, the 28th was uh, Operation Red Thunder. Uh, and it was it was very unusual because, like I said, we would normally pre-position out to Shindan and, and work with them. So, but we didn't do that this time. We got all the graphics and we got all the the product in advance. But uh, we took off and flew directly to the the mission. So right out the gate, the uh, the mission started super early. It was I think uh, I wrote down yeah one forty in the morning when we took off out of Kandahar and we flew to Farah for a refuel. And then we headed uh, up to the objective. So that was kind of unusual. And it kind of already built several hours of flight time into the mission prior to us even getting there. Um, while we're in route, we went ahead and tuned up the SATCOM radios. We're listening to what was going on. 160th actually did the infill for that mission. And uh, they had Spectre gunships, AC-130s overhead covering it. And, uh, but the AC-130s uh, at that point in time, they generally weren't there when the sun was up. They were kind of a nighttime only asset. So we would, and it was frequent that this would happen, that uh, 160th AC-130s, everybody would cover infill. And then as soon as the sun came up, they handed the, the fight over to us. And then the Apaches would be the, the overhead, um, the close air support uh, during the mission. So that was, uh, our mission was to show up right around sunrise and then kind of pick up uh, where the AC-130 left off. Um, so we were listening to the SATCOM. Like I said, we, we heard engagements were happening. So we already knew as we're riding into this thing that it was uh, you know, there was already a fight kind of happening. Uh, and who was once, the ground force? So the ground force, we had, um, there was multiple uh, Army ODA elements uh, down there. Uh, I don't know exactly how many teams, but I know there was five different elements uh, and, and JTACs that we were talking to on the ground uh, spread out across this uh, this village that they were going through. Okay. And so you get on site and, and you're monitoring, as you said, you know that there's uh, there co- there's contact happening, you know, I guess this is while it's still dark. And then when you get on site, what, what's kind of your first thing? Do you just, I mean, are you, do you just kind of identify the location on the ground and take up an orbit and wait for a call? Yeah. So, and that day, you know, it was pretty textbook. You know, we get on scene. The first thing we do is, you know, the very first thing we try to do is get an assessment of where the friendlies are. And we want to know where all the friendly forces are to prevent fratricide. Uh, so we found uh, all the, you know, elements that were there maneuvering. And then it, it turned into, okay, let's start looking for, you know, things that aren't right. Um, looking for um, you know, people that are tactically maneuvering, people that are trying to observe the friendly forces, um, you know, try to identify weapons, things like that. Um, pretty early on in, in that, uh, once we got on station, uh, I identified, you know, a fighting age male. He had a weapon. He was kind of laying in a ditch. Um, and, and then at that point we start as an attack weapons team, you start to try to develop the situation, you know, that, that in and of itself is not hostile intent enough, um, for us to engage the target. So we will watch and we'll observe, we look for them to try to stay, once they start establishing a hasty fighting position, once they start digging in, or once they start orienting their weapons and friendlies, then we can start doing something about it. So, 
Um, can you describe the, you know, we, we recently, I recently recorded with a Kiowa pilot that really described how much visibility they have from inside, uh, inside the cockpit, because there's just so much glass, whereas an Apache is constructed, obviously a little bit differently. Are you, is this, are you like, you know, visually finding these or do you have, uh, you know, sensors in the aircraft? So it, uh, like I said, I was a front seater, uh, co-pilot gunner, um, in the front seat. And I'll, I'll also interject a little bit. So everybody always, always asks. Both crew stations can fly in the Apache and both can shoot in the Apache, but pri- primarily the front seater is the one who's uh, doing most of the shooting and searching uh, laser work. And then the one who's in the back is primarily flying. So uh, I was in the front seat. Um, I've got the, it's called the TADS and uh, it's hooked into the, <clears throat> it's hooked into the big uh, sensor on the front, um, the FLIR. And uh, so we're using thermal uh, is what that's using uh, to look for targets. And it, we had M TADS at the time which uh, it was still kind of new uh, for um, Army aviation. And it's like the, the next generation of a thermal imaging for the Apaches compared to like, if you look at uh, old Gulf War tapes, you know, it, it doesn't look like anything like that anymore. Um, it, it's pretty, pretty close to HD uh, quality that we're looking through uh, thermal. And it can look uh, several kilometers out and, uh, uh-huh. and you can be able to identify uh, weapons. And, and that's what you're also, you know, I can see the temperature difference between that hot gun versus uh, the person holding it. And uh, we use cues like that kind of uh, to tell, okay, Hey, he just recently fired that weapon, that kind of thing that we can, again, continue to build that hostile uh, act or hostile intent. Okay. So you're flying about how high at this point too? Uh, at, at that time we are kind of the tactics we were using was about a thousand to 1500 feet um, above the ground is generally where we like to, to hang out. Um, the Apache, I mean, because the sensors were so good, we did not need to be necessarily as low as say a Kiowa would, you know, if you're looking out of the window, you know, and using your eyeballs to spot a target, you obviously need to be a lot closer and lower. Um, so, but because we had the technological advantage, we would, uh, use that to our advantage from a survivability standpoint. And, uh, we would build some distance between us, uh, when we could, um, just to avoid, you know, uh, them being able to effectively engage us. Another two Apaches? Uh, yes. Yeah. We generally would always fly as a pair. Like I said, there, there would be a couple of circumstances where we might uh, break off and uh, fly with a, a Kiowa or something like that. But almost always we're flying as a flight of two Apaches. And the Spectre has left by now. Is there is there any uh, any other aircraft in the air or is it just the two of you? So at that point, uh, there was there were some fast movers on station. There was, a, there was an F-16 uh, at that time who was also searching for targets. Um, and... And uh, 2009 was also really uh, just a cool time to be deployed because the joint fight, like I said, there was a lot of international force, but, uh, you know, working with the Air Force. So they're we all in the same battle net. So the F-16 might see something and then hand it over to us. Uh, and then we could get a little closer maybe um, and see if uh, see how they reacted to our noise, that kind of thing. Um, like I said, I found that one guy. And once we kind of established, he was, uh, you know, uh, digging a fighting position that was our the first engagement we had was uh you know we engaged that one individual um and then uh and then it really just be kind of became a cat and mouse game at that point uh, uh after that first engagement because uh the guys on the ground knew or actually the enemy on the ground knew that we we had arrived they could hear the, you know the rotors so they knew it was helicopters and then it just became a kind of a peekaboo game we'd see a guy in a cornfield and then we kind of try to follow them or we'd lose them in the city or try to or re, uh, you know, reestablish a PID, a positive identification. Uh, and really the, pretty much the first hour or so or two hours was uh, just this uh, 
kind of peekaboo hide and seek game with uh, the enemy and but not letting them maneuver so close to the friendly forces that they really opposed a significant threat to them. Is that deliberately, I mean, you know, engaging a target, destroying a target is obviously a very effective way of, of providing close air support and supporting the ground force. But there's also that element of sort of a psychological element of when they can hear the aircraft overhead, it changes enemy behavior because they have no way of, of especially when you're flying that high, they have no way of really countering uh, what you bring to the fight uh, from above. Is that also, you know, are you, are you sort of aware that just being there, you're kind of disrupting their ability to bring the fight to, uh, the friendly forces on the ground? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and that was something I saw, you know, even later in my career, uh, when I was with the infantry brigade, uh, we noticed even just UAVs, you know, would disrupt the enemy, even though, even though it might be unarmed, you know, when they know that something's in the air that, that totally disrupts, um, kind of their battle plans, you know, it just throws a wrench into what they're thinking. And it, even if it just changes a little bit of how they, how they want to maneuver, if we slow them down, uh, that definitely has positive impacts on, on friendly forces. Okay. So you've already engaged one target, but you say the next kind of hour or two is, is really almost this cat and mouse game is the, uh, the, the forces on the ground, the friendly forces on the ground. Are they, you know, what's, what's their mission? Are they maneuvering to an objective? So there was not a there was not a named objective that they were going uh, at on this mission because uh, sometimes they're they're going after a specific guy. Um, this one was more it was a a partner effort. So there was lots of uh, Afghan commandos and A and A uh, on the ground. They had blocking positions set up that kind of thing. This was just more of a a very large scale show of force mission uh, moving through this village uh, and and just. And just naturally, some of those missions at that time, you know, just the presence of being in the village was enough to kind of stir up the hornet's nest and get people uh, to start engaging. Um, so they didn't really go in there with a specific target they were going after. It was more just a show of force and to kind of see what stirred up. And are they taking fire uh, as this day progresses? So it, so like I said, that first bag of gas was pretty uneventful. We, we end up going back to Shindan. We refuel. Uh, when we came back, though, that's when, you know, all hell had broken loose. Um, you know, there was, uh, like I said, five elements, every single one of them were in contact by the time we got back. Um, they were taking casualties. There was Afghan casualties. Uh, we knew that, uh, one, uh, special forces operator had been shot. Um, so at that point it turned into kind of, um, like a triage situation. Cause now we're, uh, the AWT is trying to assess, okay, they're all in contact. Who's in contact the worst, you know, who's in the most imminent danger. Um, who's in the position that we can affect the best, uh, the fastest. So, uh, at that point, um, it was really, uh, it just kind of trying to figure out, uh, you know, where we could start. And, and we found a big building, I, I guess you could say it was the closest thing to maybe a headquarters. Uh, like I said, there was not a name target, but there was a big building and we could identify at least seven people with weapons, um, you know, the balconies, the windows, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and, and it was one of those rare, at least on my deployment, uh, we, we, and the ROE at the time, it was very difficult to shoot buildings. Uh, they were very worried about civilian casualties, things like that. So, uh, it was very rare uh, to actually put a Hellfire missile into a structure, but, um, due to the overwhelming number of insurgents that we saw, uh, and that kind of thing, we definitely, uh, ended up putting a Hellfire into that building, um, unknown of how many people were inside, but we know at least seven uh, were there. 
Uh, and then uh, they uh, during the BDA, they or the the battle damage assessment, they did find RPGs. Uh, they actually found a, a surface air missile in there too. So it was a pretty significant uh, strike for us. Yeah, you had um, so you shot that you you hit the building with hellfires when you're engaging like you know the first the single man target um, on the ground. You're engaging with the thirty millimeter cannon. Uh. Yes, uh, there, there's definitely some latitude uh, for the pilots on how they want to engage. What, what's the best tool for the job, so to speak? Um, you know, we have 30 millimeter cannon, uh, the M230 uh, chain gun on, on the front. We had um, Hellfire missiles, uh, and even the Hellfires come in different flavors, uh, so to speak. You know, we had um, Kilo 2 Alphas, and they had a blast fragmentation sleeve uh, added to them. We also had thermobaric Hellfire missiles. Um, which create an overpressurization effect. Those are extremely effective against structures. Uh, and then occasionally we'd have rocket pods. Uh, for this particular mission, though, we were just running straight Hellfires in 30. Okay. And then what? Um, once you hit that building, does that have an effect? Does the fire die down? Or is it still, um, you know, I think you said all hell had broken loose. Is, is you know, is, is hell still breaking loose at this point? So, so yeah. Uh, so at this point, everything is still, uh, it was still very, everybody was still in contact. Um, so, and kind of what you were talking about, the, the having the eight, the attack weapons team, the AWT having two Apaches, we did something significant, which was we split up and um, cause this was in this large river Valley. And so we, we split, we were still within line of sight and, you know, uh, com- communications with each other, obviously, but um, we, we split up to start to work different JTACs and try to work our own individual engagements uh, just so we could try to cover more ground. Uh, it's significant because, um, you know, whether you're Air Force or, Ar- or you know, Army Aviation, you know, or even you could make some parallels to, you know, an infantryman that you've lost your battle buddy, you've lost your wingman um, at that point. He cannot directly cover me. Obviously, you know, if we got shot down, we could respond or that kind of thing. But I don't have anyone immediately covering, you know, my breakaway, that kind of thing. Um, but that's what we decided ultimately as a as a as a team. We talked about it. We were all comfortable with it, and, uh, and that's what we did. Um, my aircraft, I was pushed over to one JTAC who was being pinned down by a sniper. Um, so. I communicated with him and did my best to try to figure out an approximation of where the sniper was. I found uh, some tree lines and uh, eventually we started working, uh, communicating with him. He'd uh, kind of walk us onto a target is the expression we'd use. And uh, I kind of found where I would be if I was the sniper. Um, you know, I found some rubble and, uh, and good cover. And so we just started pummeling that area with 30 millimeter because it would get some penetration through the trees. Um, so about halfway through, I'd say maybe my, it was maybe my second gun run on that, my gun failed. Um, so I got halfway through a burst gun jams and, uh, and now I'm in a bit of a pickle because now I only have hellfire missiles. Um, the good news was the sniper fire had stopped, uh, for that JTAC. So I ended up pushing off him and, uh, going back to link up with the other aircraft um, but now I had lost my primary close in weapon system. Um, the hellfires are great. And there was definitely times where we would shoot a hellfire at an individual. That was the only option that we had, but, um, you need standoff for that. And, um, as this day went on, uh, that standoff that I talked about earlier, uh, became less and less. Uh, we definitely had to kind of close the gap in, um, to effectively get in there, uh, in a more urban environment. Um, you have less uh, avenues uh, of attack, so to speak. 
So uh, you had to line up your shots a little bit better, and sometimes that was just easier if you were down and low. Can you describe you, you described it as an urban environment? Um, are we talking about a village, a town? You know, how dense is it? What are the you know are they tall buildings? Are they all one story buildings? It, it was mostly one story building. I'd say it mostly one and two story buildings. It definitely was not an urban landscape like Kandahar, but it was. It wasn't a small little village. It, it was a it was a large Afghan village for for your listeners that are familiar with kind of uh, what that would be like. It, it was fairly dense, uh, definitely lots of streets, uh, and it was in a river valley. So there was um there was a one river that kind of winded through. Okay, um, and I, I think you know I, I want to circle back to that in a, in a little bit. But first, um, so now you've got. You're you're down to only one weapon system, which you said you know is a great weapon system, but has some disadvantages. Um, specifically, you know the standoff distance required. When you go back to refuel, which is what every couple hours. Uh, ge- yeah, generally um, every two to three hours, depending on you know uh, obviously how much you're putting, uh, how much stress you're putting on the aircraft in terms of fuel burn. Um, you know, every two to you, three hours. And are you rearming uh, at that time too? We are. Yeah. So. The uh, every time we went back to the FARP that day, our low fuel lights were on. We we gave the the customer on the ground every drop of gas that we could give them, um, and and multiple times we went into our because you have a reserve fuel, you know, so we have a bingo fuel, and you know, and we'd have reserve fuel and kind of hit that number. It was like, okay, I need a break station at this point, but all the pilots really know, okay, I, I can really push it into my window if I need to. But we all kind of have that number in our head of like, if I don't leave by this point you know, we're going to, we're going to flame out, you know, we're going to run out of fuel on the way back to the, the FARP. And we definitely pushed into that reserve window uh, multiple times that day, just because, you know, they were in contact and we, and we just didn't want to leave. Um, when we got back to the FARP, um, yes. So you ref- I kind of, it almost is like a NASCAR uh, kind of pit change. You know, you've got uh, crew chiefs running up and the refueling, uh, just depending on how many people are in the FARP. Um, I, I listened to the interview with the, one of the Kiowa pilots. He was talking about loading his own rockets. Yeah, and there's days that, you know, that happens too, where you might have to go out and do your own thing. But if you have enough people on the ground, you got guys putting gas in. I had uh, mechanics um, and actually one of the pilots, the maintenance test pilot coming up and they were trying to fix my gun. And so they were just frantically doing whatever they could um, to try to fix it. But ultimately we weren't going to let that hold us up because, you know, I still had hellfire. So if we could go back into the fight, um, even without a gun, that's, uh, what we were going to do. So they were, they were working as fast as they could and ultimately they could not, uh, resolve it. So, uh, we had to just go back without it. Okay. And so how many times did you go back and refuel throughout the course of that day? So we did, we did three full bag, I keep saying bag of gas, but a full tank of gas or, you know, one, basically a block of station time. Uh, we did three bags of gas uh, over that village uh, that day. So the first one was pretty uneventful. The second one um, <clears throat> was the one where, just where everything was crazy. And that was the one where my, where my gun failed. Um, some other things that happened, uh, we had an A-10, uh, I know, got called in. So a- a- as the battle kind of got bigger, you know, then they start calling. Because there's uh, the ground force talking to their higher headquarters as well, obviously. And so... Um, Marine helicopters did show up uh, very briefly. They kind of helped cover us, um, but uh, they ran out of gas pretty quick and then left, and we never saw them again. But an A-10 was on station. Uh, similarly to the the Hellfire engagement we had, they identified another 
kind of stronghold. The ATN dropped a GBU on that. Um, we went down and we actually covered, so All-American Dustoff uh, out of uh, 3rd Battalion, 82nd, uh, the medevac, they came up from Farah to go pick up the, uh, the wounded. Um, so we had to cover that, uh, exfil of the medevac aircraft. Um, that happened on that second one. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, my backseater, uh, and I, we did, we were comfortable with, uh, kind of this, I mean, as comfortable as you could be with being down a weapon system to, to continue to support it. So then the, the, after the second time that you, refuel and you get back and again you still only have hellfires when you get back on site is there um is it you know still as as active and kinetic as it was um was previously or at what point does it start to die down so it it was still pretty uh it was still pretty kinetic when we got back on that third one um the kind of thing one of the things to remember is you know once they once they the aircraft leave station then you know the, the the enemy knows that that's their time to exploit they know that they, they have less air support, you know, maybe none, but definitely, certainly less air support. So the fighting always picks up whenever the aircraft breaks station. Um, so they were in ticks when we came back. Um, the, like I said, my gun was broken. The FLIR was also starting to degrade at this point, because as the day kind of winds on, I say degrade, um, you just think, you know, on a nice cool night, you know, the rocks get cold, but, you know, your body temperature still stays warm. Well, as the day goes on and the, and the rocks and the terrain and everything around the people start to warm up, you get less uh, contrast between, you know, people and, you know, the surround the objects that are surrounding them. So um, definitely by the time the, we came back the third time, uh, I kind of, you know, I guess an analogy is, you know, if you're watching a really long movie, you're in the third act, you know, it's, it, it's just dragging on. You, you want it to be over, but you know, you kind of, we just refuse to, to quit on it. You know, we weren't going to, you know, we we're going to see it through to the end. So, uh, so the flare was degraded, the gun was broken. Um, but we, you know, we just kept, um, just kept at it. Uh, we went to the primary, uh, the, one of the main J attacks, uh, I'd say the primary engagement that was uh, the troops in contact at that point. Um, we came up, uh, we came up his net, uh, cause they're all kind of on, operating on different, uh, little team nets. Uh, we came up on his net and he, said he had a four to five suspected enemy in a wood line, but you know, he couldn't ID weapons. I mean, he, just, he kind of asked us for his, you know, our opinion. He just you know, asked if he had any ideas. Um, what we decided to do was lead went in and uh, decided to break off, kind of just do a low pass. Cause even if we couldn't see people through the tree line, we could see, we could pick up muzzle flashes normally. So lead went in and kind of just did a low pass. And then we saw the, the tree line light up. We'd see the muzzle flashes. Uh, RPGs were bursting behind aircraft kind of thing. Uh, but the problem was we were at that point, my aircraft was too close to get a hellfire off the rail in time. So we kind of really followed and did the same thing. Uh, flew in low, tried to draw as much fire as we could. And then by that point, lead had uh, made a 180 and was able to identify the muzzle flashes and then go in and suppress it. Um, once we figured out that technique worked uh, for identifying some of these dudes that were bedded down in the tree lines, uh, we just continued to use that uh, really the rest of the afternoon in our third bag of gas. So uh, they would, uh, you know, the friendly forces would identify a tree line or, you know, whatever that they were taking fire from. Uh, my aircraft would go in low because I had no gun and we would just do nothing but just draw fire. And then the other aircraft would, 
then at that point engage with uh, 30 millimeter uh, or hellfires as appropriate. Um, and so presumably the the enemy forces on the ground just can't resist the temptation to, to you know to take a chance at shooting down a U.S. aircraft. But I mean, clearly there's some risk. You know, it, it all it takes is a lucky shot, especially from an RPG. Are you kind of calculating that risk in your in your head and saying, you know, there is some risk, but it's you know it's low enough that this is this is a you know the best and most viable way of of supporting the ground force. Um. I think despite what any safety officer will tell you, there's there's no magic formula for, for risk assessment. I, I think there's a certain, you know, a gut instinct that just comes with it. And maybe it's, I mean, I'm sure there's an ele- element of a bravado and stupidity that go along with it. But um, um, every time we hop in that helicopter and take off, it, there's an element of risk. So uh, I think most pilots I know, at least, I think we've just come to terms with it. We've accepted, you know, that there's risk. That's it's inherent. It's part of our job. Um, and especially when you're an Apache pilot, uh, you know, your job is to support that guy on the ground. And if you're not willing to take a little risk, that, that guy might die. Um, and so, like I said, sometimes we, we probably exceed, uh, what some commanders might consider acceptable risk. But, uh, at the time, you know, we knew that that, that was working. We knew we were getting them. We were, we were suppressing these wood lines. We were, we were killing insurgents. Uh, and we're protecting ultimately that ground force. And so we just continue to do it. And, you know, for any of our listeners that have been uh, in any sort of combat experience, a firefight, anything that lasts more than a few seconds, it, you know, they, there's sort of a tempo that um, ebbs and flows that, you know, it's, it's almost, it's, you know, almost uncontrollable, but it's there. Um, was that the case here where there, you know, when you're on, you know, on a full take of gas and you come back and you're there for a couple hours, were there, you know, periods where you were just sort of circling ahead waiting for the next call or was it kind of frenetic breakneck pace the entire time? It definitely ebbed and flowed. Uh, so and again, for contest, so start to finish from the time we took off to Kandahar, by the time we shut down, we flew an 11.6 uh, in, in aviation. We, we ran tenths of an hour. Uh, so we flew 11.6 hours. Wow. Um, without stopping. And I mean, that's an eternity. <laughs> and, and we only had, I mean, we had about we had a little over a dozen engagements, I believe that day, uh, total. Um, so, you know, it, it definitely ebbs and flows. Um, there's times where you're just kind of in search mode. There's, uh, I, I heard a, a podcast recently, I think it was a fighter pilot was talking about it. He goes, you can't be a hundred percent all the time, you know? And so you, you're, your mind, it just kind of goes into autopilot a little bit for some of that, especially when you're going to and from refuel. Um, and you kind of just have to shut down some non-critical systems in your mind and just, uh, just to keep the, the energy and the focus where you need it to be. So during in, you know, at that sort of height of an engagement, is there, uh, is there an adrenaline rush? Um, I would, I would certainly say there is, uh, by that point and that, and during this engagement in particular, yes, this, I mean, this, or this fire battle, uh, it was, it was definitely a, a major event during my deployment. Uh, when I was early on, you know, and it was my first combat deployment. Yes. Some of the engagements, even however minute, uh, definitely an adrenaline rush, you know, just, you can feel it elevated heart rate, all that kind of stuff. But, um, I think towards the end of the deployment, I think everybody gets a little bit jaded uh, to an extent, um, and, and it becomes a little more routine. But um, but yeah, this this was not a normal uh, engagement, so the, the the heart rate was up and the adrenaline was definitely up, which definitely keeps you going. 
Yeah. You know, it, you know, adrenaline serves a, a purpose it's, you know, and so once your, your body starts to, once you starts or your mind, I guess, starts to get accustomed to something and it doesn't treat every single one of those, uh, instances as, you know, uh, uh, you know, requirement to kind of respond for survival's sake, you know, it's natural that you wouldn't necessarily feel that same adrenaline rush, but at this stage of the deployment, when you are getting even, you know, a little burst of adrenaline, there's, you know, there's biochemical effects uh, inside your body, which means that, you know, it's elevating everything inside your body. And then when you come back down, there's a, you know, there's an element of exhaustion from it. When you're engaging 12 times over the course of this day, does it get more difficult, you know, toward the end to sort of recover and, and stay focused? Um, I, I would say so. Yeah. It looks, it like that analogy to it being like a long movie, you know, by the end of it, you, you're just, you feel beat down, you know, you're tired. Um, you try to, to, to keep frustration at bay, I would say, um, not frustrated that you're, that you're there by any means, but frustrated at the end of, you know, kind of that, like, Hey, just, just give up already, man. You know, you're not going to win. <laughs> you're wasting all of our time kind of thing. Um, or, you know, or frustrated, uh, when you, aren't able to, uh, sometimes you might have somebody dead to rights. And then if you lose PID on them, if they, you know, dip behind a building, um, and then you can no longer positively, uh, confirm who they are, you know, we couldn't engage. Uh, that's just, you know, those are the rules of engagement at the time. Cause uh, you wanted to avoid civilian casualties. Um, so, you know, you definitely get frustrated when things like that happened. Um, cause, and then you start to a little bit of doubt might creep in like, okay, well, what if, oh man, I, I miss that dude. And what if he turns around and, you know, shoots a, a friendly, uh, cause you know, I didn't get there in time. So you definitely had to suppress uh, the elements of frustration. You had to suppress, uh, the elements of doubt, uh, and really just kind of stay focused on, okay, I'm here. What can I do now, uh, in the present? Uh, and what can I do to you know, set myself up for success in, you know, the future, whether that be, you know, five minutes from now or an hour from now. Or, or on the next uh, bag of gas. Was there during the course of the entire day during this eleven point six as you as you described it? Um, was there, you know, you described that there were these sort of ebbs and flows, you know, peaks and valleys. Um, was there any point, you know, any peak that was that felt like this is the side of kind of the the biggest kind of defining moment of this fight? Um, yeah, I would say definitely once. You know, it, that kind of those last couple of engagements, uh, once we figured out that technique of coming in low, um, that, you know, you know like I said, they, we were doing what we needed to do, uh, you know, and we were calculating the risk. But, you know, every time you dive in, knowing that you can't really shoot and that you're, you're kind of a, you know, a decoy target, um, a living <laughs> a decoy, it, it definitely uh, it, it had an impact on me. Um, I, I remember the last the last engagement in particular. Um, yeah, there was no way my aircraft could shoot a hellfire uh, because the the enemy was so close uh, to the friendlies that it was a danger close fire mission. Uh, and danger close, you know, if is you know is it's just that when the enemy is really close. But each weapon system has a different uh, distance that's associated with danger close. So uh, danger close for a thirty millimeter is not the same as danger close for a GBU. Um, and uh, the enemy was too close uh, that we felt to shoot a hellfire safely. Uh, and since my gun was out, uh, there was really nothing I could do except just go in and draw fire. Uh, so we went in, drew fire, and then um, and then uh, Lead, who is now kind of flying trail, uh, he got in really low on the trees because uh, again, it's just we wanted to absolutely do everything we could to uh, prevent fratricide, and pretty much just fired his thirty millimeter just straight in through the trees, really down low, 
uh, and engaged all those enemy. Um, and, and really that was the kind of final engagement we had that day. Uh, after that point, we had done that two or three times. The enemy kind of, they caught on that we had caught on um, and they knew it was kind of futile to, you know, to keep fighting at that point. And, and really everything kind of started to die off at that point. And then when the decision was made for you guys, did you fly back to Kandahar? Uh, no. So, uh, so funny enough, we, we, during, so throughout the mission, like I said, ebbs and flows during some of the low points, we're calling back home and uh, a pilot can only fly for so long without an extension. Um, you have a duty day and you can have so many hours that you can fly. Um, so we, we hit, a, I think at that time it was like eight hours or something. And then you had to call and get an extension. Uh, and they could extend you up like 10 or you know, I can't remember exactly, but we had called, I think it was 10 and we called back and we had said, you know, Hey, we need a two hour extension from right now. And, and then the people in the talk started doing the math and they were telling, Hey, what time did you take off? And, and we pretty much just kind of started to ignore headquarters at that point. Cause again, we just, as a crew, as a team, you know, as an AWT, we said, we're not leaving these guys. We're like, I don't care if they give us a direct order to, to come home we're not leaving these guys. And so, uh, so we stayed and again, we stayed till low fuel lights came on. So we had to go back to Shindan. Uh, when we went back to Shindan and we were mission complete, we called back to Kandahar uh, back where uh, brigade headquarters was. And they just, they would say, Hey, you guys are grounded. They're like, don't, don't look at a helicopter. Don't touch a helicopter for 24 hours, you know, just stay in place. So we all went, we all went to bed. Uh, none of us set an alarm. <laughs> we just slept however long we slept. Um, and then, uh, and then we ended up going back, uh, the following day. Um, uh, so yeah. Okay. So there's a couple things that, uh, I think are kind of unique that I want to, I want to ask you about in the story. Number one, there were, you said there were five JTACs on the ground. Is that, you know, and at one point you said there, there was a sort of a single battle net that everybody was on, but you also said that, you know, they had their own, um, you know, their own networks so you could kind of talk to them independently. Was that? Was it complicated? So, yeah, uh, being the front seater of an Apache is, is an extremely complicated profession. Um, you're manning the laser, you're manning the weapon systems, you're looking for targets. And generally, we'd have about five radios that you could be talking on. Uh, there's air-to-air battle nets. There's kind of like open nets across Afghanistan, or at least there were at the time. Um we were up SATCOM. Uh, one aircraft was up SATCOM with the brigade headquarters. And then the other aircraft was up SATCOM on the, the, the SOTIF net. Uh, we were up one radio for internal. So one aircraft to talk to the other craft, but you know, no one else here. Um, and then uh, oftentimes we'd be up uh, maybe a stack net, you know, so that we could talk to the F-16s or the A-10s or whoever, whoever else is in the stack. And so you're juggling all these radios. Well, I mean, we divvy them up. We call it crew coordination. Um, so the backseater might say, hey, you got radios one and two. I've got three, four, five, um, uh, or that kind of thing. Or a particular, like I said, uh, in the terms of SATCOM, one aircraft is talking to you know one higher headquarters and the other aircraft is talking to another one. So we, we, we would divvy it up and then we share information uh, between the crew uh, in the, that aircraft and then between the attack weapons team as a whole. Okay. And you also mentioned that there were, um, there was an F-16 on station. At one point there was an A-10, there were Marine aircraft, um, there briefly is, you know, at, at some point does sort of airspace deconfliction become a, a, a challenge? Yeah. And, and it, I, I promise it's less 
uh, chaotic as it's as it sounds. Um, uh, so the JTACs, or even if it's somebody who's like a Ford, uh, you know, observer uh, on the Army side, uh, or even air crews themselves will divvy it up. Um, you know, if we're looking at GRGs and we have grid lines, um, or if we're looking at latitude, longitude. Uh, any number of ways we could do it, or sometimes even at its most basic form, you know, I may, you know, look at the Marine helicopter and, Hey, you stay North of the river, we'll stay South. Um, you got to think three dimensionally when you're an air crew member. So we, we can deconflict by altitude and then we can also deconflict laterally uh, using terrain or using um, a grid line or something like that. So everybody's got their, their piece of the pie. Um, and some, we'll even do that just when we're searching. Uh, even if we're deconflicted by altitudes, like, you know, obviously with the F-16, it's not flying the same altitude as the Apache, but we'll divvy up sectors. And so, hey, F-16, you look north of the river, I'm going to look south. Uh, that way we're not kind of stepping on each other, um, over searching one area of the village while another area is not getting looked at at all, that kind of thing. We, um, we've featured, uh, we've published a couple articles at MWI, um, you know, over the past couple of years that have kind of talked about the different, and it's very natural, I think, the different sort of uh, military cultures between uh, the various services. Um, you're now communicating with, with people from other services. If you're talking to a JTAC, could be an Air Force personnel on the ground. You've got, you know, an Air Force pilot in the air uh, on a fixed wing aircraft, potentially Marines. Was that... Um, was there any sort of challenge even in terms of like nomenclature or do, you know, do kind of aviators or people in the aviation community all speak the same language? Uh, we, on some things, we definitely speak the same language and that's what's great about JTACs, you know, they're joint uh, controllers. And so they are, they're kind of the continuity, especially when it comes to uh, engagements um, and how we, uh, how we strike the enemy. We do that very similarly. Uh, there were times where, yeah, we just definitely didn't speak the same language. Um, uh, there was one Marine Corps FOB, uh, it wasn't on this mission, but we'd go into out in our, cause Marines were really heavy out in our sea West. Uh, and we'd go to their FOB and, uh, you know, this kid's running up and he's doing hand and arm signals and I have no idea what he's trying to tell me. And we eventually just had to hop out. Uh, he didn't know how to refuel us cause he's never seen an Apache before in his life. He's been in, you know, some Marine Corps squadron and so uh, there was moments like that where it would be a little frustrating. And, um, and it was also a good lear- a teaching point, too. We would, uh, When we had the opportunity, we'd shut down uh, and we'd talk to him. I'd, I'd grab the kid and I'd be like, hey, you know, go grab however many refuelers you have available and let's give you a quick class on the Apache and how we safe our weapons and how you can uh, hook up and how you can refuel us and that kind of thing. You know, if if multi-domain operations is the is the sort of concept, the the way in which we'll we'll fight in the future, I think that that's a really good example of how um, there's probably a lot of work to be done to to make it all work at the pointy end of the spear at the tactical level. Um, so then, the last question I kind of I think I want to ask you about, and, and we touched on this briefly, but you said you know there was an area that was you know at least generally urban, more urban than much of uh, Afghanistan anyway, and that it was a sizable village with streets and buildings. Um, are there you know, besides just, you know, obviously the, the very real and important consideration, um, of, you know, the concerns over civilian casualties, does it raise any other challenges from an aviation or from a close air support perspective? Uh, just operating in the urban environment. Yeah. Um, operating in the urban environment as an aviator, it, it definitely, it just takes a higher degree of planning. Um, we were fortunate enough that when we worked um, with the SOTIF customers, they would give us phenomenal products. 
just because again the caliber of intelligence that they're getting um, and and the the graphics that they had and they just they did a phenomenal job of always laying it out they'd have buildings numbered uh, there's very little ambiguity uh, when we were communicating in the urban environment and and, and that's that's critical I mean we see it happen um, you know every now and then. Uh, you know, an Air Force guy will drop a bomb on the wrong building or something like that. And it'll come back to, you know, bad intelligence, um, bad graphics um, or something like that. Not necessarily the pilot's fault, but, um, you know, just a, a chain of events that led to um, that incident. So especially when you're in the moment in a tactical environment, in a firefight, um removing as much ambiguity, removing that fog of war uh, the best you can um, really is the key to winning uh, the urban environment uh, as an aviator from an aviator's perspective, in my opinion. Um, you know, like I said, when people are ducking in and out of buildings. Uh, so my example earlier, you know, if a dude uh, and I saw him and he had a weapon, but then I lost PID, uh, my ability to very quickly and timely be able to communicate that to the ground force. Like, Hey, I saw a guy, he had a weapon and he popped into building 115. Um, that's much more clear, concise. And, and, uh, I can relay that quickly and it's completely understood what I mean, instead of me trying to talk a, a ground force onto an element, Hey, go up this street, make a left. No, you went one too far. Um, no, turn back, make a 180. Oh, now there's a, a truck there. Um, the better prepared you are to go into those fights uh, and um, the better common understanding you have across the ground element, the aviation element uh, really is what kind of separates uh, whether or not you can be successful or not, in my opinion. Sure. Well, Dylan, thank you very much for, uh, for joining the spear, sharing your story. Um, I really enjoyed it and, and appreciate you making some time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.